Uh, Our Bible reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and put a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one son left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus has a knack for telling amazing, memorable stories. Parables, we call them. Um, Why don't you call out, what's your favourite all-time parable? Prodigal son? Got another one? Sower, yep. The furnace? Okay. (laughs) Any others? The widow? Yep. Yep. I'm obviously looking for one and you haven't called it out, so, you know, let's speed up here. Good Samaritan. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I did a bit of internet research, if that's not a contradiction in terms, Um, and I think the prodigal son and the good Samaritan are the two most um, popular parables. And um, if you're driving home today and somebody's had a car accident and you pull over and try and help and you actually uh, have the best of intentions but do something that actually ends up being harmful to a person, there's legislation that means that you won't be sued and it's called Good Samaritan legislation. Astounding, isn't it? That Jesus, this guy... 2,000 years ago, doesn't write a thing down, tells a story, uh, and it's so influential, so memorable, that some of our legislation is framed around his talks. So, you probably got this sense of, wow, we just named up a bunch of parables, and I'm guessing they're all a bit mixed up in your head. Do you have any sort of an idea, when does Jesus... Tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Is it in his year of popularity or is it in his year of opposition? Well, today I want to give you an overview of the parables 
uh, and how they work and how they fit into Jesus' ministry. And we can see here the Good Samaritan and, of course, it's the priest and the Levite who have just walked on by. We'll come back to them. In fact, we won't come back to them. Ask each other on the way home in the car. Where, where does the Good Samaritan fit? So Jesus tells a bunch of parables in the year of popularity. And remember, he's in the north. And this is the sort of imagery Jesus uses. He talks about sheep and seeds and soil and trees and fruit and harvest. I'm sure you know these parables. Um, and there's also not just gardening or agricultural or agrarian parables. There's also aquaculture. Why? Well, because we're up the north. The Sea of Galilee is there. And the plains are there. And that's the breadbasket of Israel, right? And so Jesus talks about nets and fishing. Uh, and other imagery in his year of popularity parables is very domestic. It's like, you know, just a, a small suburban house with mum and dad, and the sorts of things you're going to find there are lamps and clothes that get a bit torn, and so you've got to sew a patch on them, or there's uh, wine that needs to be put into wineskins, or perhaps you need to go to the bank manager and get a loan, and so we're talking about a money lender. Uh, we're building houses and then in good years, maybe we have to extend the barns. And so there's going to be builders who are building with rocks. And there's talk about foundations and how do we keep the rain out and the wind and the weather. All the kind of things that ordinary, everyday people in the north of Israel, in the region of Galilee, are going to understand they're going to be able to relate to. Jesus Year of Popularity parables also have certain themes. Things are new. So there's like a, a new piece of cloth that's got to be sewn onto an old garment. Or there's a new wineskin that's got to house old wine. How's that going to work? And not only are, is the kingdom new, but it's growing. And so we're talking about seeds and soils and it's not only good seeds that are growing, right? That the wheat and the weeds are kind of mixed up together. Or there's this tiny little mustard seed that begins small and then grows huge and becomes this tree and everyone can find rest and protection in it. Or you put some yeast in some dough and, and the dough expands. And it's not just growing, but it's positive. It brings clarity. It brings light. And... and the people should be excited uh, and have this sense of we've, we're experiencing something worthwhile. There's something of great value that's happening here at the moment. And so Jesus talks about how the kingdom is like a precious pearl that you'll sell everything for in order to own. Or a hidden treasure. Or it's as precious as somebody who's been given, forgiven an incredibly great debt. Or it's like a sheep that's fallen in a hole and that sheep is so special that you've got to get it out of the ditch, right? So Jesus comes with this positive message about something new, something growing, something that's going to offer protection. How are people going to respond? Jesus knows. And in his parables, the response will be mixed. Some seed's going to fall on this type of soil and some will get choked, and, but some will grow. And produce crops hundred times. 
Um, there's wise and foolish builders who are building on good or bad foundations. There are good and bad fish that are pulled in in the nets. There is wheat and weeds that are growing together in the fields and they'll be sorted out on the day of harvest, right? So they're the year of popularity themes. Um, in the year of opposition, Jesus is now in Jerusalem in the south. And I want you to notice this, the imagery changes. So the agricultural imagery stays. We get sheep, we get goats, we get trees, although the trees aren't growing anymore the trees are actually not bearing fruit and therefore they end up being cursed. Um, the small-scale domestic is kind of gone and it's replaced with much larger households. And so now we experience masters and servants and tenants and talents or gifts and um, people have accounts and they're held to account for what it is that they've been given and they have to pay tax or uh, interest or whatever it is. Um, and there's a sense of hierarchy too. So now there are judges and banquets and masters and there are wealthy people and there are also homeless people and poor people and crippled people. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's those who come early to the banquet and those who kind of um, arrive, sorry, those who go to work early in the fields and those who go to work late. Uh, and so we get this sense of, um, you know, two groups of people. And the themes change too. So in the second, in the third year of Jesus' ministry, um, we're now talking about lost and found. So something has been lost and Somebody, Jesus, is coming back looking for things and trying to find things. There's a sense of accounts are being called in. How have you used your talents? It's time to pay tax on the vineyard. Um, the thief is coming. Will you be ready when he turns up? Or the bridegroom or the owner of the house is going to turn up. Are you prepared? There's a sense of the accounts are being called in by a master. The master comes back and he wants to call in the servants and say, okay, what's mine? What's due? Time to pay up. Time to settle accounts. Uh, and for people who have not worked, who have not produced, who haven't uh, sown uh, and used their talents to grow further talents, there's a sense of judgment. The sheep are separated from the goats. Trees are cursed. Things are cut down and thrown into the fire. Tenants are evicted. And, and so we get a, a binary in the uh, third year parables. Some people are in the banquet and some people are out. Some people are wearing the right clothes and some people are not. Uh, some sons say no, but they do the right thing. Other sons say yes, but actually they end up doing the wrong thing. Some people are inside the banquet and some people have been shut out when the banquet has commenced. Can you hear kind of the differences between the year of popularity and the year of opposition parables? So let me just try and paint a big picture of the differences between the two years, right? 
My, my guess is lots of you have never heard about a framing of the year of opposition and the year of popularity before this year. Right? But let me just show you some consistent differences that we've seen over the last few months. In the year of popularity, there are lots of miracles and the miracles gather a crowd and then Jesus' teaching is accessible. Hey, this is on offer. There's a movement here. Come and join us. In the year of opposition, Jesus actually dials up the intensity and the teaching gets too hard and lots of people leave. In the year of popularity, everyone's getting healed. In fact, you've only just got to touch a part of Jesus' garment and the masses are healed. Whereas in the year of opposition, there's far less miracles. And the few that do happen have a particular point. It's a female who's healed. It's a blind person who can see. It's a Gentile who, um, whose son or daughter is healed, right? And, and there's, a, there's a comment there about who is in the kingdom and who isn't. In the year of opposition, sorry, in the year of popularity, Jesus is wandering around the north. Um, he's preaching in synagogues. He's got three trips where he goes uh, on the road. In the year of opposition, he turns his face towards Jerusalem and it's all about heading to the cross, heading to the great showdown. And there's a resoluteness as Jesus turns his face. In the year of popularity, Jesus is guarded about his identity and his purpose. Don't tell anyone. I forbid you to speak about this. Whereas in the year of opposition, Jesus becomes much more transparent the Son of Man must die and rise again. This is my purpose. This is why I'm here. This is why we're going to Jerusalem. And now we're seeing today that the year of popularity has parables about the new and the growing, whereas the year of opposition has parables about being held to account and being judged on the basis of what you have done with the gifts that you have been entrusted. So let's dive into a few parables. Um, but before we do, sorry, one more slide. Uh, I, I just want you to note the opposition that we've seen so far. So who is opposing Jesus in this year of opposition? Right? And it's been the masses up the north, too hard. He passes through Samaria. Jamie um, led us through this last week. And the Samaritans are kind of like, hey, he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's something that we're not really concerned about. Uh, and, and he also got opposition from the disciples. They've misunderstood what greatness in the kingdom looks like. The fact that you have to give up, that you have to sacrifice. They're more interested in sitting in seats of power and honour. And so the question today is, where will further opposition come from? All right. We read Mark 12, and it's, uh, according to a scholar called Tom Wright, um, perhaps uh, one of the most two or three most influential New Testament scholars uh, at the moment, he thinks this parable, more than any other parable, summarises the earthly ministry of Jesus. Why? Why does he say that? What, what, what's the deal with this parable. And we, we get it, right? It's kind of obvious. 
Jesus comes to the people of God. The Son of God comes to the people of God, and it's the long-awaited Messiah. These people have been in some or other form of oppression for six of the last 700 years. Just try and get your head around that, right? Uh, the uh, First Nations of Australia have experienced some or other form of oppression for 230-odd years. The Jews, six of the last 700 years, they have been occupied by a foreign power. All sorts of atrocities have happened, and the Messiah is coming. And what happens? Well, they kill all the messengers, all the prophets, and now they say, hey, this is the heir, let's kill him as well, and the inheritance will be ours. It's just scandalous, isn't it? That these people who are awaiting, yearning for a Messiah, for a Saviour, he finally comes and actually they choose to kill him. And where we kind of go with this is where the first hearers of the parable go. Because we read it, right? The chief priests and the teachers of the law from this time on opposed Jesus and they wanted to kill him because he knew he was speaking about them. It's pretty obvious what this parable means. That the religious establishment at times gets it in their head that, you know what? This church, this synagogue... This temple, this ministry, this sacrificial system, whatever it is that we've been running, you know what? We've got it under control. We know how it works. Leave it to us. Just keep your hands out of this and, um, you know, um, we've got it under control. Thank you very much. And it's appropriate and, and uh, the correct interpretation that we can see judgment of religious leaders, and we can be cynical about the religious establishment. And just at the moment, there's a great reason to be cynical about the religious establishment. If you look at what's happening in Russia, the uh, Russian Orthodox Archbishop um, or Patriarch, Cyril or Kirill, however you pronounce his name, um, he is endorsing Putin's warmongering. Why? Because he would like to bring the Ukrainian Orthodox Church back underneath him. And you just think about the evil and the atrocity that those kind of statements are, that you can endorse what Putin is doing. And that's what the chief priests and the teachers of the law hear Jesus saying about them. We kill the Messiah? That's what you're accusing us of? That is blasphemy. Of course they're offended and they want to kill him. Now, this is not the only opposition that Jesus encounters as he makes his way towards Jerusalem. It's very easy for us to kind of be critical of you know, the, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church or the Pope or the Archbishop or the Diocese or 
um, whatever people in head office we think are disconnected and caught up in their own narratives. But Jesus speaks about more than just religious establishment opposition. Let's just dive into a couple of other parables from the year of opposition. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands up and prays about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. There's something about comparisons that is so natural and yet so dangerous. How do you know whether you're doing all right? Because it can be kind of vague and, and one of the ways that we're just inclined to answer that question is to just look around, right? And, and this Pharisee looks at the sinner next to him and says, you know, thank you, I, he's got it wrong, he's doing this, he's not doing that. Um, you know, and, and that leads to this sense of, of pride and self-assurance. Those people are also in opposition, the proud. And what they're doing, in essence, is trusting in themselves. They've got it wrong, so I must have it right. They've misunderstood, so I must have understood. They're doing the wrong thing, I must be doing the right thing. Thank you, God, I'm the one who tithes, I'm the one who fasts, I'm here praying in the temple, I'm on the right path, I must be somebody who welcomes Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, that guy is opposition. He goes home, he's not right with God, it's the person who says, have mercy on me. And doesn't trust in himself at all, but throws himself entirely on the mercy of God. Here's the third sort of person who uh, is in opposition to Jesus. It's the person who um, is invited to the banquet. And the response is, well, actually, I, I, I'm kind of busy at the moment. I've got some other priorities. Uh, so it can be the rich who are preoccupied. I've got a house, I've got an investment, I've got a new field, I've got a business, I've got a cow, I've, I've got a relationship, I've got a marriage, I've got something at work. And this becomes something that occupies, it's front and centre, it's their hope, it's what they believe is the purpose of their life. It's the outcome that they're chasing that they think will give meaning and significance. And Jesus says, actually, that is another form of opposition. To be not concerned with the things of kingdom, but the things of this world. And then fourth, here's another one. At midnight, the cry rang out, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. And the virgins all wake up, trim their lamps, and there's some foolish ones who haven't got enough oil, and there's some wise ones who have. And the foolish ones say to the wise ones, give us some of your oil. And the wise say, no, there may not be enough for the both of us. Instead, go and buy some for yourselves. 
But while they were on their way, the bridegroom arrived. This is obviously a parable about the second coming of Jesus. And the ten virgins who were ready went in. And the others don't and the door is shut. There's that sense of account, judgment. Are you in or are you out? It's binary. It's one or the other. And I think the point is that opposition comes from the foolish. And the hallmark of the foolish is that they're unprepared. They know in theory that the bridegroom's coming, but at the moment, actually, we're just kind of caught up, we're doing this, and we're chatting about that, and we're worried about our hair, or whatever it is, uh, and they're distracted. They're caught up in the meaningless. And actually, when the sun returns, they're not ready to meet him, and they don't make it into the banquet. Now, as I said earlier... This is astounding. Marvel with me that the Son of God is coming back to the people of God and there are pockets and pockets of opposition. It's not just the chief priests and the Pharisees who are against Jesus. It's actually the common people as well. And there are different reasons why people are in opposition to Jesus. But the net effect is the same. Jesus is coming back. He says, I'm king of the kingdom. We're going to overcome sin on oppression by believing and by following me and by making me the Lord of your life. And the people say, no, we're Lord of the church. Or actually, I'm more worried about this other thing. Or, hey, I'm in because I'm better than them. Or, actually, I'm kind of caught up with something else at the moment. I'm kind of, you know, busy. Thank you very much. Come some. Yeah. God's people don't respond to the Son of God turning up in the flesh and saying, come and follow me. And you know what? This actually is part of the plan. So let's jump back to that first parable. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? It's a great rhetorical question. And the people who are listening are going, of course he's going to, you know, he's going to kill. That's harsh, isn't it? Kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus says, haven't you read the passage of Scripture? This actually is prophesied in the Old Testament. That the people of God will reject the cornerstone. And yet, this is a marvellous thing because the biological children of Abraham disinherit themselves and the Gentiles can then become the spiritual children of God and of Abraham and are invited into the kingdom. You see, this is why Tom Wright says this is such a summary of the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's about the Messiah coming to the people of God and the people of God in themselves, in various ways, at various levels, all saying, actually, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. 
We're trusting in ourselves. And they disinherit themselves from citizenship in the kingdom and it becomes possible for the Gentiles to enter in. Well, what are we to make of the year of opposition and the parables that Jesus tells? And the question's pretty obvious, isn't it? I think what we need to ask ourselves in Lent as we prepare to meet Jesus again this Easter, how might we be in opposition to the coming of Jesus who says, not only am I the temple and the king in Jerusalem, I'm the king of your heart and I'm coming back to claim my throne. How can we be in opposition to that? And the answer is in several ways. Here's a possibility. I think at times the religious and the devout oppose Jesus. What's going on for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the, and the, uh, and the scribes, right? They go, hey, it's okay, Jesus, God, we got this whole thing worked out. We know how to run the temple. We know how to run the sacrificial system. And I think we can do something similar. We've got this church thing covered. We've got ministry covered. We've been doing it this way for ages. Just leave it to us. We know how to do this. And Jesus turns up and wants to do something new. And we say, goodness, we can't have... And uh, we end up opposing whatever it is that Jesus wants to do because we think it's our thing and we are the owners. We're in control. We're the one making decisions. We know how this thing works. I wonder, might that be you? Might that be an element of how you Without knowing, do you think the Jews knew they were rejecting the Messiah? Might there be a snippet of truth to that? What about the proud? Those who kind of look around and say, oh, thank goodness I do this at church. Because if I didn't do this, my goodness, if we all did what they did over there, this place would be a mess. It wouldn't be safe, it wouldn't be legal, it, you know, nothing would ever get done. Uh, those who, you know, my way is the right way. I know how this thing works. And we're standing there kind of praying about this, making comparisons, trusting in our ability to read the situation and to resolve the situation instead of saying, I can't bring anything to the table. Jesus, what do you want to do? It's your church. I'm throwing myself completely on your mercy. Or here's another possibility. We're preoccupied. It's the new house or the new field or the new relationship or that project that we started in lockdown 
or that website that we go and visit and visit again and visit again whenever we feel like there's a bit of a gap in our life and we want to fill it with something. Or that thing we fantasise about owning or doing or that project that we kind of started that fills some kind of a void in our lives or at least so we imagine it does. And in the process, we've actually made something else the source of hope and fulfilment and meaning and we've displaced Jesus as Lord and we oppose him coming and claiming his throne. And here's the last possibility. It could be the foolish. The people who are distracted. The people who are just watching another season and another season of Netflix, who are just trying to get to the next level of that game that you've got on your device. And we fill our lives with the trivial and the unsubstantial. And we oppose Jesus coming and giving our life weight and purpose. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And whilst they're coming up and we're going to sing a little bit, I, I want to ask you to consider, as you kind of look at that list on the screen, how is it that you might possibly be unconsciously Opposing Jesus' coming as Lord of your life this Easter? Where is it that you look for hope and meaning and fulfillment and purpose and, and push Jesus to the side and trust in yourself and your capacity to arrange things or to organise things or to acquire things or to control things that you think will give your life meaning. Only Jesus can fill that space in our life. And opposition, it turns out, can be far more subtle and far more widespread than just the chief priests and the archbishops who happen to think that they're in control. Let's stand and sing. And I'm going to come back in a minute and I'm going to, uh, halfway through the song, lead us in a prayer of repentance. But whilst we're singing, why don't you just invite the Spirit to give you eyes to see where it is that you might be in opposition to Jesus in your own heart.